Let me invite you now to turn to the back middle portion of your worship guide, uh, where you'll find uh, the scriptures that our sermon will be based on. If you have a Bible, you're also welcome to put a couple bookmarks to the three different readings um, that we're going to be doing this morning. I'm going to invite Alistair forward in a moment, but uh, let me... um, as he comes up, let me just give you an introduction to the series. You can come all the way up, Alistair. It's okay. Um, today is, uh, is the fifth and final part of uh, our series, The Pilgrim Life, that we've been going over the last couple weeks. Um, the last aspect of The Pilgrim Life that we're focusing on this morning is Pilgrim Hope. Pilgrim hope. God's people are pilgrims. That's the image you need to have for yourself if you're following Christ. We're traveling through this world, following Jesus to the land, to the world that he's prepared for us. Though God made this world and he put us in this world and he called it good, it fell into darkness, it fell into corruption. We don't quite fit here anymore like we used to. Something's wrong. And so God put eternity in our hearts. He he sent a savior to rescue and to redeem us. And for those who trust in Christ, we now hope for the life and love that can't be ruined or torn away by sinful behavior or by difficult circumstances or by in the end, the inevitable death that we'll all face. Christ calls his people to follow him in this world and to walk with him in hope. Hope in biblical terms, it isn't used in the feeble way uh, we often use it. There was a, somebody during the pre-service prayer who was describing something he hoped would happen. I think he crossed his fingers and tapped his foot and maybe knocked on wood or something like that. That's typically what we mean when we say hope. But biblically, hope is something very different. It's much more than wishful thinking. In the Bible, hope is confident expectation that what God says, he will do. What God promises, he will deliver on. We can bank on it. And so as we walk with Jesus through an often bitter world, our hope, our confident expectation is that he's bringing us into one that's sweeter. That though we right now bear the cross, our pilgrim hope is that one day we'll be given the crown. And the text that Alistair is going to read from us this morning, they point us to these unblushing, glorious promises that God makes for his pilgrim people. Our first text is from Hebrews where the writer, uh, if, you, if you have your Bible open, you can look at the verses right above in Hebrews 11, where he's been describing the great faith of great and respected mothers and fathers in the faith who've gone before us. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, David, all these kinds of people. But people who died in hope. They were confident that God would make good on the promises he made to them, even though they never saw the fulfillment of those promises. Uh, Our reading from Revelation, uh, along with chapter 21 and chapter 22, these are the very final chapters of the Bible where John describes the vision God gave him of the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the destiny for all of God's people, but also the destiny of those who reject God. Finally, we're reading a short text from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Alistair. So hear what the Spirit is saying to the church from Hebrews 11:13 to 16 first. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
And next, Revelation 21, 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the fatherless, the faithless, sorry, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And finally, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For, we not, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word, which gives us vision to see things not as we see them, but things as they are, things as you see them. Would you give us your spirit now? so that the words you're speaking to your people would be life and truth, not just words on a page, but living words written on our hearts. Help us revive and enliven us to live by faith, not by sight. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. If you missed the introduction, my name is Mike. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church. Really pleased to have you with us this morning. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite passages from the Chronicles of Narnia, that, that famous youth series by C.S. Lewis, uh, it's a passage from the line, Witch in the Wardrobe. And it, it takes place towards the end of the book, where after you've heard of the castle Care Paravel, uh, you've been hearing about it through this entire story, but you've never quite been there yet. You haven't seen it uh, through the eyes of, of the Pevensey's children. The Pevensey's children are the stars of the show, and they've started out in, in, in the western end of, of Narnia, and during the entire journey, they're slowly going east. They've had an arduous journey. It's been very long and painful. They've had lots of intense battles, but here, towards the end of the book, they finally arrive to the castle, Care Paravel. They've been told about this castle from the moment they entered Narnia, that it was their destiny, that this glorious golden castle with thrones that they'll sit on that rest on a peninsula on Narnia's eastern ocean that this place will be their home and of course this is the first time that they've ever seen it and this is how C.S. Lewis the author this is how he describes it the next day they began marching eastward down the side of the great river and the next day at about tea time they actually entered the mouth the castle Care Paravel on its little hill towered up above them before them were the sands, the rocks, and the little pools of salt water and seaweed 
and the smell of the sea and long miles of bluish green waves breaking forever and ever on the beach and oh the cry of the seagulls have you heard it can you remember now lewis ends that passage very oddly he asks his readers he asks them about the mythical land of narnia and the imaginative castle care paravel have you heard it can you remember of course we can't <laughs> we've never been there <laughs> But Lewis, who himself is a Christian pilgrim, I think very shrewdly, is noting something in the glory of Care Paravel for all fellow pilgrims. He's trying to awaken them a sense of homesickness. That though we've never seen the glory of heaven, we've only heard about it, there's something in its beauty, in its fullness, its promise that draws something deep inside of us, something like the melody of a song that we've, we, we can't remember. It, it wakens in us a deep hunger and an ache. And he asks us, have you heard it? Can you remember? The pilgrim hope that we just read about in Hebrews and in Revelation, the glorious eternity with Christ and his people forever, that is the answer to our homesickness, to the deepest desires of all people. As we also journey, as we head eastward following Christ, endure many battles, we head towards a home we've never been to, but to where we belong the most. This morning we're going to talk about four aspects of pilgrim hope that our texts this morning show us. The first one is this, pilgrim hope is true. Pilgrim hope is true. I apologize if everything up to this point has sounded too poetic and too fanciful for you. Uh, we had a Narnia reading. We've already talked about heaven, a forgotten song somewhere deep in our hearts, eternal life, unending love. The promise that Revelation makes to us that God himself will wipe away every tear from every eye, every hurt that you've ever experienced will be wiped away. It'll be as if it's never been done. That is how full this peace will be. Death mourning, painful weeping, it'll be gone. And maybe there's a part of you that's saying, even as I'm saying that, that's very nice sounding, but can we just get back to reality, please? Like many people hear about Christians talking about heaven and the world to come and just think it's a bit of a waste of time. Perhaps even it's a little bit dangerous. What we need are people who are fully engaged in the here and now. Like, wake up, come up with solutions for us today. We don't need people who are pining and longing for, for the life after, uh, for life to be better then. All we've got is now. Maybe you say that sometimes. And yet, Christians insist that our hope in the life to come isn't just escapism. It's not imagination. It's not self-deception or delusion. It's true. It's worth building our whole lives on. We confess this every week when we recite the Apostles' Creed. This is something that is believed to be true by Christians everywhere, always, and all of them. Where we confess, I believe in the life everlasting. Amen. If you follow Christ, this article of belief is essential. Revelation 21, verse 5, if you look at there, John records the voice of God speaking to him from the throne. And he says, John, write this down. This vision that you're seeing of a renewed heaven and a new earth that death itself will be put to death. This glorious hope, write it down because these words are trustworthy and they're true. Uh, the, the Greek word that uh, John is using for the word true, guess what, what it means? 
It means true. <laughs> That's actually what it means. In contrast to things that are false or things that are imaginary or things that are contrary to fact, the heaven that he's describing is true. Our hope is true. Christians believe that this hope is true, not only because the scriptures everywhere attest to it, but also importantly, we know a man who died, who went to see the other side, who returned to tell us about it, told us to follow him there, and has gone ahead to prepare a place for us. This, of course, is Jesus Christ. This hope of eternal life, it probably sounded unbelievable, or it did sound unbelievable to Jesus' disciples when he told them about it. They, they were hesitant to hope as we are. We don't want to be pulled in any more than they did. And yet this is how Jesus spoke to them about their true hope. This is from John 14. He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus wants you to know that these words are true. They're trustworthy. Pilgrim hope is true. The end of suffering and sadness. Gaining eternal life, eternal peace, blessedness. It may seem unbelievable, but believe it. Not just because you feel like you want to believe in it. Not because it's natural, because often it isn't, but because the resurrected Christ has told you it is true and it is trustworthy. So if Pilgrim Hope is true, what we're talking about this morning is not poetry. It's not pie in the skyism, but it's a future reality. It's a certainty. The second aspect, Pilgrim Hope is practiced. Pilgrim Hope is practiced. There's a saying that someone can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. That people who long for the life everlasting, they may just kind of like check out of life on earth. Maybe they, they live with a bit of a death wish. Well, if the life to come is so much better, why don't we just move the process along? But when you look at the life and example of those who had the deepest pilgrim hope, who were the most certain of the life to come and the glory of it, who had the strongest homesickness for heaven... We see that that's not the case. The people just mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, if you were to lift your eyes above verse 13 where we began, you'd see people again like Abraham, Sarah, David, Samuel. For their whole lives, they were longing for a heavenly country. They were never at home in this world. But they didn't check out. They didn't become useless to their neighbors. They became exemplars of people living lives of love of self-sacrifice to others, lives of generosity, of courage. They led lives that sought the good of the world, even of their enemies. Because they were so sure that their hope was in heaven, that it was certain, they practiced that hope. What we do in this life matters deeply, friends. It matters deeply, what you do today. It matters eternally. We, we can't skip this part of living on earth and just fast-track to heaven. If you look at Revelation our passage in Revelation to the words in verse 8. This is a, a very painful reality, uh, but something that we have to speak of, that not everyone will enjoy everlasting peace. Here John describes people who have rejected Christ, who they've lived lives of utter self-love and selfishness in this world. He describes some of the characteristics of this. They're hating and, and murdering other people. They abuse the gift of sexuality they live lives of deception. Their end is worse than their beginning. Destruction away from the presence of Christ. It's an awful destiny. The kind of people that John is describing here 
are being contrasted with those in verse 7, which he says simply describing them, the one who conquers, the one who conquers, the one who repents of sin, trusts in Christ, lives a godly life, stands firm in their faith. They will have this heritage. I will be God to them and they will be my son. That is, they, they will be inheritors. Men and women will receive all of the good things that I have in store for them. See, people who are heavenly minded can, with God's help, be conquerors. They can conquer selfishness, self-love. They can abstain from so much of the allure that this life gives, the lust of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life. If you think that life, that this life is all there is, imagine having this mindset instead of having hope, that this life is all there is. You don't have any pilgrim hope in you. The advice that even the scriptures would give you is just grab it while you can. Get it while it's hot because it's going to end very soon for you. But if your hope is in the life to come, if you live with this expectation that you will one day drink from the clear, cool water from the spring of life, you can conquer. Your hope is something that you can practice every day in the choices you make, in the company you keep, in the way you spend your time and your money. Uh, as the saying goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done in Christ will last. What your practices today tell you about where your hope is. Is it here? Is it now? Or is it in the life to come? So pilgrim hope is true. Pilgrim hope is also practiced. Are you living for this life? Or are you preparing yourself? Are you getting ready for the next one? The third aspect is that pilgrim hope is earthy. Pilgrim hope is earthy. I hope you notice something special about the description of heaven here in Revelation 21. It's, it's uh, that it's not, heaven is not the place that God's rescued people ultimately end up in. All right, let's start reading in verse 3 altogether. Uh, I'll, I'll read it for us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, oh, maybe I don't want to read that part. No, I'll start in verse 1. <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Uh, listen to what I'm saying with this point. Our future hope is not in an immaterial, floaty, ghost-like spiritual existence apart from this world. Maybe you have locked in your mind the images of Raphael, that great artist who had many chubby babies with wings lying on clouds, right? Uh, that, that might be nice art, but that's not how Revelation 21 and 22 described what eternity will be like. In there, heaven comes to earth and remakes the earth. God doesn't call us up, up, and away into eternity, but he moves into the neighborhood and he lives with his people finally. All the unending weight of glory, of God, his truth, his beauty, his goodness, it comes to earth and it restores and remakes everything. When Jesus was resurrected three days after his death, he appeared to his disciples bodily, physically, earthly. And while they could see him, they could speak to him, they could touch him, he was changed, he was new. Eternal life 
is like life on earth today in a similar way that Jesus' resurrection body was like his earthly body. It's similar, recognizable. You can see and taste and touch the new earth, but it'll be so radically different, so gloriously better, so free from all that makes life painful and frustrating that we can call it the new heaven and the new earth. My kids, of course, as children do, always ask me questions about what heaven and eternal life will be like. Will there be baseball? Will we see and know each other? Will there be babies? Will we get older? The Bible doesn't give us a lot of answers for these questions, but it promises that it'll be better. Whatever you can imagine, it'll be better than that. We enjoy good food here, right? Whatever food will be like in heaven, it'll be better. You may have seen in our reading that the new earth doesn't have a sea. The sea was no more. Maritimers, we don't like this verse. The sea in the book of Revelation and really throughout the whole Bible is an image for chaos and confusion and death. There is no sea on the new earth, but it'll be better. You won't miss it. Pilgrim Hope is earthy because the things that we delight in here and the things that we long for, but we haven't tasted... Our hope isn't to escape from all of this and somehow get above and beyond it, but to see Christ come and transform and restore the earth to what we've always hoped it'd be, to make it even better than we could imagine. The things that some people have wanted their whole lives. A spouse, a child, a loving father, a loving mother, a home to call their own. These desires and longings won't just get like, washed off of us so we can enter into some you know, neutered spiritual experience. No, God restores life to what it always should have been. But even better, there's not going to be any marriage in heaven, friends. But it'll be better. There's no sea, but it'll be better than that. The things waiting for us in heaven will be so much more glorious, so much more lovely, more earthy, than the very best things in our lives today. These things are just a faint trickle compared to the the fire hose that'll be unleashed on us in heaven. So Pilgrim Hope is true. Pilgrim Hope is practice. Pilgrim Hope is earthy. It's like this, but so much better, infinitely better. And fourth and finally, Pilgrim Hope. Pilgrim Hope is in the beatific vision. Pilgrim Hope is in the beatific vision. I'm taking a risk here by giving this word, but I I think it's worth it. The beatific vision is the theological expression of what we see here in Revelation, and again, throughout the scriptures, from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end, of our highest hope. It's that we'll be with God, and he'll finally be with us. That's our our reading from, from Corinthians. For now, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our glorious pilgrim hope is in this, the beatific vision. The ultimate hope that we have isn't that one day in heaven we'll get to fly or, or to see great grandma again. Our ultimate hope isn't in the stuff that Christ might give us in the new heaven and the earth, but in Christ himself and having him, seeing him face to face in his glory. More than anything else that we could want, this is the beauty that our hearts long for. God dwelling with us, 
us being his people, God being our God, like it was at the beginning in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. Now, this might be foggy to you right now. It might not sound like a joyful thing, like the greatest thing that could possibly happen to you. It may be hard for your mind to grasp why this is so great. Sometimes we catch little glimpses and glimmers of it. Maybe in worship some Sunday, where, where, where God unlocks something, where you begin to delight that Christ loves sinners and suffers, that he has given himself on the cross to redeem and to restore us so that we can be with him forever. Perhaps a moment where you're reading the scriptures and the Spirit reminds you of his deep, deep love for you. That though he hates sin and your sin is great, yet he is an even greater Savior than all of those things. But at this time, we only see these things dimly. Only in part. One day, though, it'll be face to face. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan pastor. He wrote in the 18th century, and there was a sermon that he gave one time called the Christian Pilgrim, or, and he had subtitles for all of his sermons, The True Christian's Life, A Journey Toward Heaven. And this is what he said about the beatific vision of, of being able to finally see God, being able to see Christ face to face. He wrote this, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness for which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully, to enjoy God, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. The enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Edwards is begging his church, as, as I'm begging you, friends, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. The beatific vision is our greatest hope, our greatest joy. I love worshiping with you here now. I, I delight to see you, but I want more. I want to see him. I want, I want you to as well. And are you living for something that in the end will keep you from the beatific vision, will keep you from ultimate joy, from seeing Christ face to face in happiness? God tells us here that there are some that would rather trade their eternal happiness and peace in Christ's presence for things that will never and can never satisfy them in the least. Things that will come and, come and go in a moment. What are you holding on to right now that's keeping you from following Christ wholeheartedly today to begin traveling the pilgrim life? Perhaps one of the most surprising things that, that is condemned here, those who will not enter into this peace, written in Revelation, if you look at um, the beginning in verse 8, as for the cowardly, cowards, those who will not let go of the things they cling to, who will not dare great things for this God who has dared great things for them. They will not receive this great joy. It's a fearful thing to hear. Infinite happiness, eternal joy, the ocean of gladness invites you to himself today to taste to see that he's good. And he's asking you simply to let go and to follow him. Won't you come? He's calling you home. Have you heard it? Can you remember Friends, the invitation from this entire sermon series has been for us as a church, us as individuals, to live and to walk the pilgrim life, to follow Christ through this life, to follow Jesus, to trust that he'll bring us home. 
whatever the cost may be to us, because it's worth it. Every day to live radically different, to change the way we live so that this life that's promised to us will be ours. One of my favorite songs, um, maybe, maybe you've seen the lyrics of it framed on the wall in our living room, is a song called Far Kingdom by the Grey Havens. And I sing it, I sing it often around the house. I sing it often when life is hard. <laughs> um, I also sometimes sing it when life is so sweet that it, it causes a homesickness uh, for a place that I've never been to. Uh, these, are, these are the lyrics. There is a far, far kingdom there at the end of the sea. Where they know my name. And until that far, far kingdom calls me home, O oh, my soul, I will wait. There's a river we will know, ever clear and ever full. From the fount that overflows in the light of the king. And when we drink it, we will find that this joy ever full will ever rise. And it will rise on in the kingdom, in the kingdom. Now may you hear Christ calling you home. May you remember Christ alone can bring you safely there. May you lay aside everything that hinders and slows you down in this pilgrim life. And may you see yourself one day that far, far kingdom and live forever in the light of that king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these great promises, uh, this great hope that you've given to your people who deserve to remain lost, to continue to make mud pies in the alley, to not enjoy the holiday at the sea that you've promised to us, and yet you come to sinners and sufferers, and you give the most precious thing. You give your son for us. Lord, for those of us who know that we're lost, have turned away from you in rebellion. May we now enter into your joy to repent of our sins and to trust in you. Christ, you are our hope. We long to see you one day. Would you create this hunger and this homesickness in the hearts of, of these people gathered here so that they're willing to lay aside anything so that they can have you in the end and forever. We pray all that in Christ's name. Amen.